know if you're aware, but last Sunday marked the first Sunday of my 11th year of preaching at Harvest. Uh, so I'm excited for that. I many so many ways I feel like I'm just getting started. I had never preached on a weekly basis before coming to Harvest. So you have been very gracious uh, guinea pigs for me as a preacher, and I so appreciate it. Uh, what comes with uh, passing 10 years in one place means I get to retell stories. Uh, so that means if, if what I share this morning, if, it, if you've heard it before, well, that's too bad. Um, but anyways, one of my favorite um, Christmas time stories is one of a little boy who desperately wanted a new bicycle. And he wrote a letter to Santa, and he thought about, well, maybe I haven't been good enough this year for me to be able to count on Santa for this one. So he decided he was going to try praying. And so he prayed. He prayed really hard, and he thought, you know what? I feel like these prayers are just hitting the ceiling. I need to up the ante here. And he knew that over at... His, uh, the church on the corner, there was a nativity scene. And so he made his plan, and late at night for him, which was probably about 7.30, uh, he, in the dark of night, he went over and stole baby Jesus from the nativity scene. And he gets back, and he makes one more request. And he takes baby Jesus, and he puts it in the, his closet, and he kneels down next to his bed. He says, God... I've got your son. If you want him back, I better get a new bicycle for Christmas. Upping the ante, right? That was the plan. Understand, this is a picture of religion. That is a picture of religion. It is always a matter of trying to get one over on a God, on the God, in order to get them to do what you want. Religion is always a matter of, I'll do this to get the God off my back. Or I'll do that in order to get the God on my side. See, in man-centered religion, which is all religions aside from biblical Christianity, I am fully confident to be able to say that. Man-centered religion is called such because man is in the center of it. And God is just a tool for him to use with which to control his world. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for religion. This was the message of the author of, the, of this letter to the Hebrews, to these people who were considering Christ as their Messiah or who had signed on for Christ. They had become convictional Christians, followers of Christ that indwelt by the Holy Spirit that set them in a place where they're saying and believing, I am going to follow this man as my Messiah no matter what pressure may come as a result of it. And in last week's passage, ending with verses 26 through 28, in chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, the author summarizes his argument for Jesus as our perfect high priest through a better line, and that of being of the order, the priestly order of Melchizedek. And summarizing this argument, we read, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
speaking of Jesus as our perfect high priest. He has no need like those high priests, speaking of earthly high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Speaking of Jesus, offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If you remember, the, the, the word of the oath was that which came through the psalmist David when he mentioned Melchizedek only one other time, saying, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a prophecy about which Jesus would be fulfilling. Now think about what it would be to be one of these high priests who had to offer up sacrifices for himself to cover his sins and then, the sin, and then offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Weak, sinful himself. I mean, what if he goes and he takes the blood of the sacrifice for himself and he goes over to the altar to pour it on the coals and he kind of burns himself a little bit and he goes, pig poo. Uh-oh. What do I do now? I guess get some more and offer a sacrifice for, for what I just said? No, we have a perfect high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. So what's the author's point in describing a high priest who is perfect forever? Well, he happens to tell us that. In fact, he says at the beginning of chapter 8, which we'll look at here this morning, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not a man, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, speaking of the tabernacle in the wilderness, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the, that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. First of all, I want to get across to you here this morning. Don't settle for distant religion over a relationship with God. Do not settle for distant religion. Religion that is intended to keep God at a distance. Unless we want to draw him near to get his help with something. So we're going to do something to get him to draw near to us. Don't settle for distant religion over a relationship 
with God. He says as much in the first three verses when he says, Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Meaning, as he reference, he's referencing back, he, Jesus is holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. These verses, they, they sort of sum up the whole of how Christ's work is beyond religion. It is beyond the Jewish religion of that day. And it should be a comfort to these Hebrews that are considering Christ when they realize I'm not leaving a different relationship with God for Jesus. I'm leaving religion for a relationship with God through Jesus. And the fact is, is that we can have a relationship with God because of Christ's work. It is completed. It is completed you, you might remember, as we've been referencing ever since we were back in chapter 1, that, for, that the high priests around the, the tabernacle and around the temple, their work was never done. None of the priests that ministered in the tabernacle or in the later form in the temple in Jerusalem would sit down. They were always at work. They were always standing. They were always moving. The idea that Jesus is seated, as we reference back, I mean, think about that this idea of Christ being seated, it's an important theme in the letter to the Hebrews. Remember back to Hebrews 1.3, as I mentioned. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We'll see in Hebrews 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We'll see in chapter 12, verse 2, it, how it describes Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is a position of completion of his work. We're not being asked to vote for Jesus as the perfect high priest. We are told that he already is. And if we are smart and have the Lord working in our heart, we will make him our savior. As well as the perfect high priest. We can also have a relationship with God because of Christ's position. And that is one of being exalted. Did you notice where Christ is seated in all these descriptions of him that we looked at? There in Hebrews 1 verse 3, he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. 10 verse 12, at the right hand of God. Chapter 12 verse 2, at the right hand of the throne of God. Recall that this is speaking of the fulfillment of Psalm 110 where God proclaims to the king that he would install. In verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus fulfills both 
the prophecy of being Israel's king, born of the tribe of Judah in the line of David, and he fulfills the promise of being our priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is our priest king. In the reader's culture, the most exalted position was always to be at the right hand of power. And we'll, we'll call someone our right-hand man, right? My most important person in my life, in my job. Jesus is the most central, important, exalted, key individual to the total power and reign over all that exists, both visible and invisible. And he is so as our perfect high priest. He uses his position to complete and establish forgiveness of sins and relationship with God. That's God's purpose. Praise the Lord. Lastly, we can have a relationship with God also because of Christ's workplace. It is the true tent, we are told here. This, this true tent is the original heavenly tabernacle that God instructed Moses to construct and carry with Israel throughout the wilderness. Okay, it, It's not saying it is the tabernacle. It's saying it is the original that that tabernacle, that physical tabernacle, was made to portray. And, and this is why you guys who were in men's Bible study and went through the book of Exodus and were looking at and and they and God instructed them to make the poles this tall and to make the the fence this big and the whatever topping of something with a pomegranate is you know to do that as well and the idea here the news flash that we are given in this passage is that there is a true tabernacle in heaven that the one that God instructed Moses to make, it was patterned after the heavenly one. And this tabernacle is in heaven because the perfect high priest is in heaven and has offered himself for us. This will be further explained in chapter 9. But one writer describes this as a divine necessity for Jesus to make an offering for us. And we've seen this described also in, as Jesus offering himself. We saw this in 7 verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And spoiler alert, the, uh, for the next chapter, the, me, the summary idea that is going to be is a discussion of that true tabernacle that will be discussed in chapter 9 is in verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When did he do that? A.D. 30, A.D. 33, somewhere around there. But he will appear once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. And it was done by the sacrifice that he made of himself. Don't settle for distant religion over a relationship with God. 
You know, some remote control model airplanes are pretty amazing. I mean, some of them, even like this is an MD something or other, uh, commercial airliner, and that's not Photoshopping, okay? That's, people actually build these with like gasoline and jet engines, and I would be so afraid to actually fly it if I went through the process of making uh, a model airplane like this. I mean, and can you imagine feeling proud of your work to, to make something so uh, uh, huge and functional and looking so much like what it is modeled after? But if you need to fly somewhere, your model commercial airplane is not going to help you get there. Not at all. You would need to step into a real plane with real size and real power. A relationship with God is based on Christ's perfect work. It brings us into a relationship with him through Christ's perfect work. It is not based on, nor should it lead us to, the puny work of religion. Religion does not impress us with God. Religion impresses us with how well we can control the deity, whoever that might be. But the fact is, is that it's Christ's work that enables us to come into a relationship with God. Because you know what we have? We have sin. Sin is like having uh, black grease on your hands. You know, everything you touch with those hands is going to be marked by it. And even our righteous acts are marked by our sin. And we bring, if we, if we decided, you know, I'm going I'm to bring an offering to the Lord for what I just did. And we were to lay it before the Lord. It's going to be marked with the pride that we're feeling in that moment for the offering that we have brought, for what we did before. I mean, everything that we do is marked by our sin, uh, let alone our sin in itself of the past and the present of the future is, is a sacrilege, is a blasphemy of who God is. But all of that sin was laid on Christ. All of that sin was laid on our great high priest. And you know what we are called to? To exchange. To say, Lord, all I have is sin. But I know that my sin was laid on Christ. And I know that he paid for it. And he proved that in his resurrection. And I know that you offer me his righteousness in place of that as my perfect high priest. Lord, give me a relationship with you, not based on who I am, but on who your son is, so that I too can be your child. That's the gospel. That's a relationship with God. That is not religion. I share that with you as often as I can because no amount of sitting in that chair is going to give you a relationship with God. And that's why I sit it with people who sit in church chairs. Because that's what we need. 
Let me ask you, if I told you I have the Jewish tabernacle at my house, you'd be like, really? Yeah. Why don't you come over and help me put it together? We can see what it really looks like. You might be disappointed to find out what I'm actually talking about here. And, and you can purchase one of these yourselves. I'm, I have no idea well, how much it would cost. Complete with wooden animals and a little wooden high priest. The point that, of what I'm sharing is don't settle for a shadowy religion over any, the eternal presence of God. He goes on in verses uh, 4 and 5. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. As we talked about, uh, Jesus would not be allowed into the Levitical priesthood because he's not a Levite. Thank goodness he's of the order of Melchizedek. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. As I mentioned, the, the, you know, the news flash here is that the tabernacle that God told Moses to build was based on the original one in heaven. He's referencing back to Exodus chapter 25 verse 40 when he says, And see that you make them. All these pieces of this tabernacle after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Speaking of the Mount Sinai where Moses went up to receive the Mosaic law. When he says that is being shown to you, this literally means which you are caused to see. And we don't know if he had a vision of this, if he actually had, uh, was able to see the tabernacle as it stands in heaven. And we'll learn more about this when Pastor Jeff in two weeks goes into the greater detail of the, the tabernacle pieces and, and what it would mean for us with Jesus as our great high priest when he takes that on in chapter 9. Do you know what the other name for the tabernacle is? The tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. It is where God would meet with his people. And what made Israel unique over all the man-made religions surrounding them is that God traveled with them. You've got to understand that the people of the nations of, of Midian and Edom and, and, and Canaan, uh, as they saw the nation of Israel move, led by this pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, they would quake in their sandals when they would realize they have the same power here as they had hundreds of miles over there. Their God moves with them. When they were on one side of the Jordan and the people of Jericho are on this, the east side of the Jordan, and they're like, okay, well, maybe their God stops there because that's a major body of water. And that body of water split open and Israel walked across the Jordan with their God into Jericho's territory, they were shaking to their core. The reason why God can do this, as he told his people over and over again, is because, as he says, I am the God of the whole earth. That was earth-shattering to the man-made religious people of that day. This letter must have gone out before A.D. 70. 
Because that's when the temple was destroyed. That's when the Romans finally broke through the wall of Jerusalem, slaughtering people, tearing down the wall, and tearing down each stone of the temple. And it has not been constructed since then. But did you know that the, that the leaders within Jerusalem were telling the Jewish people the same thing that the, the leaders that preceded them back before Babylon destroyed that temple? They were saying, God is not going to allow Jerusalem, there we go, he's not going to allow Jerusalem to fall because his temple is here. It didn't matter a hill of beans. It became a hill of rocks. And so that's why we say this letter must have gone out before the Jerusalem temple was destroyed because he talks about how those priests um, on earth serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The, the temple must, in my opinion, the temple must have still been standing. But did you know when the Romans destroyed the temple, they also destroyed the Jews' genealogical records? They can't prove without a doubt who is a Levite anymore. Sadly, the persecution after the destruction of the temple really turned up for the Jewish Christians. They were going to need all of these encouragements. They were going to need all of these challenges to hold to Christ in the coming days. This temple only stood for 37-ish years after Christ ascended, after his resurrection. After that time, there was no temple on earth for sacrifices to be even be made. But the Jewish Christians were able to take comfort in the fact we have the perfect high priest ministering in heaven for us and to share that with their Jewish brothers and sisters. Even so, they would need that encouragement to hold to Christ. I like what Warren Wearsby says at this point. This is a telling argument for remaining faithful to Jesus Christ and not going back to Judaism the earthly priesthood and sanctuary seemed quite real and stable, and yet they were but copies of the true. The Old Testament system was but shadows. The law was but a shadow of the good things to come. The true and full light came in Jesus Christ. So why go back to the shadows? End quote. Do you know what religious Christians do they do some strange things. They find Jesus in food. All right? They find Jesus in grilled cheese. On nan bread. I don't know if you can see those very well. The nan bread is pretty impressive, the one on the bottom left. They find Jesus in a Cheeto. They find Jesus on a fish stick. They find Jesus on a pizza. I don't know if you can see that. I think the most impressive one, just because it comes from nature, that would probably be the one that I'd be like, wow, maybe this, no, never mind. The Jesus in a sliced potato up in the top right. And people, folks have flocked from hundreds of miles to see these images of Jesus burned on food. Why? Because we're drawn to religion. We are drawn to a shadow. This is worse than a shadow, right? This is a random thing. I mean, some of these could be Jim Morrison. Some of them could be Keith Green for Pete's sake, right? 
Don't settle for shadowy religion over the eternal presence of God. Our fallen nature gravitates to the shadows over the real Savior that we must believe in. While we wait for the Lord to return, we're always tempted to settle for worshiping shadows. Within a few centuries, what is really sad is most Christians fell into this trap within a few centuries of the early church. One of the first fears that they had was, we need someone to lead us, and the apostles are, are all dead. So what do we do? Well, somebody thought up this doctrine of apostolic succession, that somehow the apostles were able to give their authority to a successor. And that became the doctrine of apostolic succession. And it just so happened that they believed that Peter ministered in Rome. And Peter being the apostle with the keys to the kingdom, well, whoever he gives his apostleship to next, well, that's the most important apostle. Over time, he became called the Pope. And that's why uh, it's believed that in the Catholic Church, when the church decides something, that is authoritative like Scripture because they believe in apostolic succession. Uh, Somebody else thought up something called replacement theology. And with all of these people that had this eagerness for the shadows, this eagerness for religion, guess what they did? They went back to Judaism. We don't have a temple, but we have these huge ornate churches. We don't have a high priest. Well, maybe the pope is a high priest. We have a priest. And he's giving a a constant sacrifice, a weekly, a daily sacrifice for you and coming to receive grace. But we'll just say he's sacrificing Christ rather than sacrificing animals. Very quickly, the the church reverted back to Judaism through the doctrine of replacement theology and ideas like apostolic succession that men could carry on the authority of the apostles because they were afraid of what they could not see. But what is faith? The evidence of things unseen. We are to resist the shadows for the real, but we can't see the real. That's why it takes faith. The truth is that faith is that evidence of things unseen. And in this case, it is a true tabernacle that truly exists, but for now is unseen to us. But I believe it's fully visible, fully visible right now and enjoyed by Tom and Terry and Bob and LaRonda and Rich, and Susie, and whoever other of our saints that have gone before us. They are enjoying that eternal tabernacle right now. Or as C.S. Lewis put it this way, we live in the shadowlands. The sun is always shining somewhere else, around the bend in the road, over the the bow of the hill. For now, we glorify God with our faith in his unseen work in the heavenly holy of holies. 
Lastly, and this is quick, don't settle for faulty religion over God's promises in Christ. He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, this is the old covenant, there would not have been an occasion to look for a second. When the old covenant, that covenant that was made with, between God and the children of Israel, the Mosaic law at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai, when the old covenant is described as being faultly, it means that it could not be fulfilled on its own. We can better understand why Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them because they were faulty without his fulfillment. Do you know what another word for a covenant is? It's a will or a testament. You know, we talk about a last will and testament. It's an agreement that has been made between two parties. This is why your Bible is divided Old Testament and New Testament. It is the old covenant and the new covenant. And we're going to learn a lot about the new covenant between believers and God that we live in today that Jeremiah prophesied about in Jeremiah 31. But let, me, let me tell you this. Last will and testament, a covenant that a man made between him and his his. Uh, um, offspring, his those that will come after him. It's probated, it's mediated by an attorney. But what happens if the will, the testament, the covenant doesn't make sense? I mean, what if it says, I leave to Bobby my only car? And secondly, I leave to Judy my only car. How does that work? It, it's a bum will. It's a, it's a bum covenant. It doesn't matter how good that mediator, that attorney of that t will, last will and testament is. It, it's not going to work. It's unthinkable then that our Lord would have to mediate for us on the basis of a busted covenant. A faulty, an unfulfillable covenant without him fulfilling it, making a new covenant. Christ's ministry of mediator is superior to the ministry of the priests of the law because the covenant he works by is better. It is new. It is replacing. And this is because the new covenant is based on the promises of transforming God's people. Or as the Bible exposition commentary says this, we can see how logical it is that our Lord ministers on the basis of a superior covenant. Can you conceive of a high priest who is perfectly moral ministering on the basis of a covenant that could not change human hearts? Could a priest who has finished his work minister from a covenant that could finish nothing? Can we conceive of a king priest in the highest heaven being limited by an old covenant that made nothing Perfect. The conclusion seems reasonable. The presence of a superior high priest in heaven demands a superior covenant if he is to minister effectively to God's people. End quote. Where we're told this covenant is based on better promises. And as I mentioned, 
we're told that this new covenant is based on the promise of actually transforming those who are in relationship with God. And this is what we'll see next week. As he quotes from Jeremiah 31, describing the new covenant that, that is the basis of Christ's ministry as our perfect high priest. And he says this back over 500 years before Christ, speaking of a relationship with God when the, with the indwelling Holy Spirit. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And then he says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. Because it's religion. But God has given us, he has made a covenant with his people, followers of Christ, relationship of him actually indwelling us. And knowing him. How awesome is that? Let's bow our heads.